of this size, there's bound to be a variety of responses. For some people, that may not be an especially salient reality. Maybe like saying, March is coming. Um, for some, there may be some haziness in terms of the idea of what Lent even is. For others, there may be a sense of a starting point of a journey. For many people coming into the Anglican tradition from other traditions, this is a time when there's a greater sensitivity to questions of calendar and season and a greater embrace of these things. Some have been on this journey for quite a while and have a sense of Lenten rhythms that you're anticipating or dreading. A few of you may be really enthusiastic about Lent, almost the point of like masochism, combing your hair shirts or oiling your cat of nine tails for some good self-flagellation. Regardless, wherever you are, I get the sense that when I worshiped with you a few weeks ago, that this is a congregation as a whole that would have a strong resonance with this coming season. The congregation that loves a good Lent. And I say that without judgment because I'm also someone who delights in the Lenten season. Indeed, I want to confirm that I'm among friends in having the similar delight. I love the richness of Lenten purple, the somber tone and the atmosphere that attends to our Lenten liturgies, the anticipation of Holy Week and Easter that we cultivate as we journey with Christ towards his cross, the, summing to, the summons to an intensive season of fasting and prayer and almsgiving, the invitation to introspection and penitence. The Lenten prose hardly fails to bring me to tears. It's an opportunity in the season to emote with the church as the year in its cycles turn. My only complaint about Lent is that it seems like it should have better music. You know, every other season in the church year, there's such memorable hymns. Uh, what, what can you think of like for Lenten songs? That's not, not a lot. I can tell you in, in seminary, singing the handful of hymns that are in the like 1982 hymnal, uh, it got pretty pedantic pretty quickly, particularly when we're, when we're singing a Lent, trying to sing a Lenten hymn twice a day, every day for the whole season. You know, there's that 40 days and 40 nights. It would just drudge on and on. And it, man, but I guess it, it goes well with sort of the penitential season, maybe. Maybe that was intentional, I don't know. I have some good news for my fellow Lent enthusiasts. According to the older calendars, in some sense, Lent is here already, at least in part. We're in this little mini-season between Epiphany Tide and Lent that's sometimes called Jessimatide, which comes from the Latin word quadragesima, meaning 40, since Lent is this 40-day countdown to Easter. And so we're in the countdown to the countdown. Last Sunday was Septuagesima, so 70 uh, days to Easter, although it, it is, ends up actually being nine weeks. So it's a 70-day countdown into the Easter season. Um, but they round to the nearest 10, and there's all this interesting stuff that happens with the calendar you can ask me about later because it gets quite bogged down in the details. Then uh, this week is Sexagesima, so the, marking the 60 days. Next Sunday is Quinquagesima. You can see the pattern developing here. Marking seven Sundays, 49 days till Easter. Following up with 
Wednesday, March 6, as Ash Wednesday, when we officially begin the season of fasting. Which, interestingly, if you're, if you're keeping score, you'll note that means that Lent isn't actually 40 days long. It actually amounts to 46 days. It's because Sundays aren't counted in the tally of 40. And again, lots of weird medieval calendar math that you can delight in later. But most calendars in the West have dropped this jessamatide for, again, a number of complicated and well-meaning reasons. I think it's a little bit unfortunate because Epiphany Tide just sort of trails off into nothing and then all of a sudden we're hit with a ton of bricks on Ash Wednesday. Um, and there was this beautiful rhythm that had emerged in sort of the medieval church in this Jessamatide. Except to a Jessima, the old gospel reading was the uh, reading of the, of the ten virgins um, and the, the five who had their, uh, their lamps prepared and those who did not, and calling for watchfulness. Sexagesima, the historic gospel, was the parable of the sower. So we prepare to hear the word of God and let that take root in our heart in the season. Quinquagesima, the healing of the blind man as we reach out um, in our blindness for Christ to heal us. Great kind of build up into the intensity of the Lenten season. And if you really want to go hardcore, the Eastern Church has a full five-week pre-Lenten season, uh, including as the 40 days approach, ramping up the fast by first giving up meat and then giving up cheese, then marking the beginning of the Lent by encouraging public reconciliation between uh, enemies in, in what I think is a quite beautiful custom. Modern calendars have tried to compensate uh, a little bit by putting Transfiguration as the last Sunday in Lent, which is a really nice idea because Christ's revelation of who he is leads us to the cross, and it should lead us, that awe as we stand on Mount Tabor should lead us to the repentance uh, in, indicated in the Lenten season. I'm not quite convinced of this in practice. Uh, moving from the glory of, of, of the mountain of transfiguration to the dust of Ash Wednesday, I sometimes feel a little bit of liturgical whiplash. But I figure that within a couple of hundred years, the church will figure this out, and it'll all be okay. I think the bigger, bigger problem, though, comes in a more subtle question, and that is, what if we're missing the point of the whole season? After many years and many Lents, that's kind of where I've come to. What if in the midst of a, an enthusiasm for Lent, and indeed because of that enthusiasm, we end up missing the point of the whole enterprise? What would that mean? Well, I can think of a couple of examples. One, you know, because the preacher always preaches to himself first. Lent can become a season of uh, personal, idiosyncratic, spiritual exercise. And, uh, you know, this was my, my college experience. I had like this Lent competition with a buddy of mine. I ended up giving up shoes one year. He gave up furniture. I tried giving up being weird. That was especially odd. Uh, it didn't work out so well. But idiosyncratic personal exercise rather than this reality of a season that we enter into together, looking at historical patterns of Lent. It's not about, you know, necessarily what I do personally. It's something that a whole culture engages in together. The seasons are turning. That's what Lent means in the English, right? It's, it, it's related to the word lengthen. The days are lengthening. It's, uh, it's an old English word for spring. 
Um, meanwhile, you know, in the, in the Latin tradition, that sense of it's just sort of a countdown, and it gets all of these other meanings that sort of accumulate to it. It's something that the church is marking the movement of the year, and that comes first, that there's an inevitability to the progress of the calendar that invites us into contemplation first, not self-flagellation, although, you know, some people might get some kind of good contemplative benefit out of self-flagellating activities. The contemplation, the invitation to see what God is doing in time and history, to be a part of the rhythm of a church year comes first. I've seen other things, like I remember uh, at one point, somebody who had tried to give up, you know, one of those, those, uh, those mini fasts of Lent, like tried giving up dessert and ended up like cheating and eating a few cookies and just like breaking down in tears over this. And I'm like, I wonder if we aren't missing the point. Repentance is good, asceticism is good, but if it becomes a matter of trying to win favor from God or from our neighbor to manipulate the way that we are perceived or what we receive from them, or if it becomes some great burden of guilt or obligation, then it seems to me that we're missing the point. So how do we stay on point? I think there are lots of answers to this question. I'd like to explore the one that our scriptures and our collect from today suggest. Do you remember what that kind of driving theme was from the scriptures? We hear in that moving scene of, between Joseph and his brothers in Jesus' command to love our enemies. Paul kind of talking about the resurrection is a little bit of the odd one out in this, but you know, you gotta cut some slack for the guys who arranged the readings. That's uh, kind of an interesting puzzle to try to assemble. But the driving force that comes, particularly from that line of our call, like without love, whatever we do is worth nothing. Love, love is the main event here. What if Lent, is actually about love. Now, if we're worried about missing the point, that might seem to be a strange word to introduce, because there's a word we seem to miss the point of. Uh, Love seems to be on the top of that list, and maybe more prone to miss the point of that than we are of Lent. Maybe one of the most poorly defined terms in the English language. Yet, my sense is that the way that we understand, misunderstand love, and the way that we misunderstand Lent might cancel each other out in an interesting way. What if Lent is about love? What if God gives us Lent, God gives us a season of penitence, of fasting, discipline, and self-denial because he loves us? And what if we can, by entering into it more deeply and fully and conscientiously, better live in the love that he has for us and be better purified to share this love with others. This isn't the only way to understand Lent, of course. But as I've meditated on these scriptures over the past few weeks, it's led me to believe that this is a reasonable hypothesis, at least. But it might take a little bit of unpacking. So the first step we need to do to take Lent as an expression of God's love is to be in a place where we can see discipline as being an expression of love rather than its antithesis. Likewise, we have to be able to see our efforts in responding to the invitation to discipline as 
uh, diving more deeply into the love of God already freely outpoured rather than trying in some way or another to earn it. This is kind of simple in principle, but it ends up being harder than it sounds. We've got a lot of baggage to work through there. For on, the one, on the one hand, we have this uh, uh, instinctive law-gospel distinction paradigm, famously pro- promulgated by Martin Luther, in which the only purpose of the law is to convince us of our need for the gospel by our inability to fulfill it. And um, they take this to apply to any law, whether the Ten Commandments or Lenten discipline. The purpose is just to fail so that you're driven to the gospel. And in certain contexts, this kind of uh, theological lens can be very useful, particularly if somebody is very scrupulous, right, and struggles with that. But it's limited. And a good way to think of the limitations of that strong law-gospel distinction is to think back on the pattern of salvation that God worked on behalf of his people at the Passover, in their exodus from Egypt. There, God rescues his people, and he gives them the law after he draws them through the Red Sea and um, out of their bondage because he loves them, and he wants to set them apart from the nations and give them a way of being in this world and to bless them, to be a blessing in carrying forward the work of redemption and recreation that he is doing. Another strategy is a more Calvinist in this approach, this idea of kind of a third use of the law, tries to build on that uh, law-gospel distinction to say, okay, God had one purpose in giving the law to Israel and a second purpose in us failing the law and now, uh, and, and causing us then to need the gospel. And then there's a third use of the law, which is we can go back and we can now, through the lens of the gospel, kind of scientifically determine what of the law is relevant to Christians and how to apply it to our lives. Again, there are certain times when this approach can be helpful, but it too has its limits. There's a confidence that a person says, yes, this is exactly what we Christians need to be doing, uh, leads to a weird kind of Christian legalism that um, on the one hand, you know, we're no longer bound by that law, so we need to blow it all up but we really have to be careful about this one or we can't really be true Christians because we're supposed to be doing that. It seems to me that an uncommon common sense can avoid the dangers on both sides by positing simply that God is a living presence in the midst of his people, speaking to us through his word and through the traditions that we have received in the voice of the church to embrace gentle disciplines that he gives us as a way of knowing him more deeply. And so we can embrace them with both seriousness and levity, with intensity and with joy, with determination and with unyielding hopefulness. And whether we fast easily and can enter into all kinds of uh, heroic spiritual disciplines that we call out of some kind of dusty corner of, uh, of historic devotional practice, or our very mild Lenten fast ends up being something that completely breaks us, and we end up by the second Sunday of Lent on the floor next to a half-eaten carton of Oreos. God still loves us, and he has redeemed us, and he will carry us on to his Easter. Lent is about love, and the heartbeat of our Lenten discipline, whatever it is or isn't, should be that God loves us 
that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he has sent his son into the world to die for us, and by his sheer grace and goodness, he has freed us from the bondage of our sin and from the burden of our mediocrity. As we lean into this truth, we find something beautiful and wonderful happens. This story worms its way more deeply into our heart and more and more it becomes, it starts to define the way that we see our lives, our relationship, the way that we interpret the world around us. This isn't uh, progressive sanctification here I'm, I'm talking about. It's kind of a confusing strategy that was meant to, confu- uh, to solve another confusion introduced by sort of medieval Roman Catholicism. It ended up just creating a bigger problem than it solves because when you tend to the language of sanctification in the New Testament, you find that the pressure of that is really on what God has already accomplished. He has made us holy in Jesus Christ already. It's not a progressive sense. In washing us in baptism, grafting us into the body of Christ, giving us his Holy Spirit, God has made us holy once and for all. We don't get more holy over time, but we do come to a greater realization and appropriation of Christ's holiness that has already been accounted to us. Something happens that is beyond explanation or beyond words. It does need something to call it, uh, and maybe if that's what you mean by progressive sanctification, okay. But whatever we call it, whatever awakens in us by the action of the Holy Spirit within our hearts is very real, very beautiful. Indeed, we become like God, as we heard in the gospel, not as a serpent, serpent promise that we would be able to claim for ourselves some kind of divine power, but as Christ promised, things that happen in us, we become like God, loving even the spiteful and uh, the unjust. It was in this spirit that Siloan the Athenite remarked that a true Christian is one who can truly, fully, and unreservedly love one's enemies, not because of some kind of uh, idea that one has, that, that one pushes by force of will, but by the action of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, entering into that love that God has in Christ for all of humanity, that, that love which caused Christ in his dying breath to call out forgiveness on those who were crucifying him. Those words of St. Siloan echo an ascetic from a millennium earlier, Isaac the Syrian. For Isaac, authentic Christianity was found in a heart on fire for the love of creation, for humanity, for the birds, for the animals, for the demons, and for all that exists. More than that, he goes on, by the recollection of them, the eyes of the saint pour forth tears in abundance by the strong and vehement mercy that grips such a person's heart, and by such a great compassion the heart is humbled, and one cannot bear to hear or see any injury or slight sorrow in any creation. For this reason, such a person offers up tearful prayer continually, even for irrational beasts, for the enemies of truth, and even for those who harm him or her, that they be protected and receive mercy. In like manner, such a person prays for the family of reptiles because of the great compassion that burns without measure in the heart that is in the likeness of God. The saint loves even demons and reptiles. Can you imagine that? 
Here's how Isaac frames that insight into imperatives, especially rich paragraph for meditation during Lent. Let yourself be persecuted, but do not persecute others. Be crucified, but do not crucify others. Be slandered, but do not slander others. Suffer with the sick, be afflicted with sinners. Exalt with those who repent, rebuke no one, revile no one, not even those who live very wickedly. Spread your cloak over those who fall into sin, each and every one, and shield them. If you cannot take the fault on yourself and accept punishment in your place, do not destroy their character. I love these imperatives as Lenten imperatives because apart from divine grace, they are not only unobtainable, that they, they actually make no sense. They force us out of a spirituality of the possible and back to focus on the source and the substance of our life in Christ as pure gift, pure miracle, pure grace, pure love. Lent is coming, and far from the achievement of any discipline or any regimen, far from our accomplishments in fasting, almsgiving, or prayer, may ours be a Lent suffused and overflowing with divine love, neither discouraged by failure nor satisfied by success, but sustained always in that perfect and unwavering presence of love that is ours from God in Christ Jesus, God with us. I'm reminded as I close of a provocative little story from the early Christians of the Egyptian desert. It said that at one point, Abba Lot went to see Abba Joseph and said to him, Abba, as far as I can, I say my little office, I fast a little, I pray and meditate, I live in peace with others as far as I can, and I purify my thoughts. What else can I do? Then the old man stood up and stretched his hands towards heaven. His fingers became like ten lamps of fire. And he said to him, if you desire, you can become all flame. May the Lord, by his spirit, grant us this desire and accomplish it within us for the sake and salvation of this dark world. Amen.